Cruise is an autonomous car company with a development cycle that is highly dependent on testing its cars, both in the wild and in simulation. The testing cycle typically requires cars to drive around gathering data, and that data is subsequently integrated into a simulated system called Matrix. With COVID-19, the ability to run tests in the wild has been severely dampened. Cruise cannot put so many cars on the road, and thus has had to shift many of its testing procedures to rely more heavily on the simulations. And therefore, the simulated environments must be made very accurate, including the autonomous agents such as pedestrians and cars. Tom Boyd is the VP of Simulation at Cruise. He joins the show to talk about the testing workflow at Cruise, and how the company builds simulation-based infrastructure, as well as his work managing simulation across the company. If you want to reach 30,000 unique engineers every day, consider sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Whether you are hiring engineers or selling a product to engineers, Software Engineering Daily is a great place to reach talented engineers, and you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, if you're curious about sponsoring the podcast, or forward it to your marketing team. We're also looking for writers and a videographer. If you're interested in working with us, you can also send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Tom Boyd, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Cruise is an autonomous car company. You work there. Your development cycle at Cruise is highly dependent on testing the cars, both in the wild and in simulation. You are in an interesting position now because the ability to test in the wild has been somewhat restricted. But let's just start by talking about the testing cycle of Cruise. Yeah, at Cruise, we want to make sure that the software that drives our car is safe before we put it on the road. Cruise's first and foremost value is stay safe. And so we want to test it thoroughly in simulation to make sure the car works. And then we test it on the car itself to make sure the simulation testing was good. So our main loop is we send our cars out into San Francisco and some in Phoenix to gather data by driving our fleet throughout the city. The cars have over 20 sensors on them. They all create feeds that we capture of data. And the cars interpret that data so that they can realize the world around them, figure out what the other vehicles and pedestrians and other objects are doing, differentiate, you know, bicyclists from trees and all of these things. And they capture that data and bring it back home after every drive, autonomous or otherwise. When they bring it back, when the drive is over, we analyze the data for, you know, areas where we could improve. We look for events where the safety drivers tag things that say, this could have been better, or moments when they took over. We always have a couple of safety drivers in our car, a spotter and someone with their hands on the wheel and foot on the brake. And if anything looks fishy at all, they take over the car and log it. And then we have people post process that to look and see, is this event where we need to change our software to do something better? So we bring that home, look at these events, And then the AV team figures out which areas need the most improvement first. They basically rank everything that they want to improve about the car and they tackle the top issues. Sometimes it's like we need to make left turns better. Other times it's we're too chicken about merging. We need to get better at merging. 
And so they figure that out. And then the AV engineers, AV is autonomous vehicle. The AV engineers work on improving the code that makes the car perform those maneuvers. Once the code's been changed, there's always the chance that we've introduced a bug or actually made things worse. Like we may have made that one spot better, but now the car does a lot of other things worse. This happens in all software. And so we test that code in a huge gamut of simulation tests. And our simulation tests that they run are arranged around a lot of different things we call product areas. They aren't all parallel. Some are like make right turns. Some are make left, you know, unprotected left. We also have ones that are like make a safe merge. But then there's ones that cross everything, which is like always be careful of what we call vulnerable road users, you know, pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists, and anything else that we're sharing the road with. And so they have, each one of those has a battery of some, you know, over a hundred, sometimes in the thousands of tests that are these short simulated snippets where we'll play the scenarios we didn't like back into the car, kind of like the matrix. You know, we have the car, we feed it all the sensor inputs and it doesn't know it's not on the streets of San Francisco. And we test to see if the car makes better choices, a lot like raising teenagers. It's like, oh, we let them into the wild and it made a better choice in all of these simulations. And we look at all the data across these tens of thousands of tests that we run every week, sometimes every night. And we make sure that we've improved the car overall and haven't reduced the things that are important to us. So that's the next step of the loop is testing it. Then we carefully deploy that code to the new cars in our test fleet. And the fleet will then drive around San Francisco and find out if not only did simulation think the code was better, not only did the engineers think the code was better, but that the car performs better in the wild. That last step is the one that we've been impacted hard on with the new COVID crisis. We can't field as many cars. I think we're down to about a tenth the number of cars we normally have on the road. And so we're starting to rely more heavily on simulation. So if I understand correctly, you first, you can take the car, put it with its current model on the road, it drives around, you've got the human spotters, but the car is driving autonomously and it's gathering information on what's going on, what it's doing. And let's say you have some kind of situation where it makes a mistake, like a clear mistake, like it, you know, passes a stop sign. That's obviously an egregious error that it probably wouldn't make. But if it did drive past a stop sign, then that would be problematic. And you would want to make some fix to the code. Or you could even have that occur in the simulation with the simulated data that the car would be bringing back. And in either case, if you had some mistake that the model ran through, you would want to alter the code, you would want to fix it, and then you would want to redeploy it and see if the car actually, once it was deployed back into the wild, if that fix was durable enough and flexible enough to actually satisfy the real-world use case once it goes back into the wild. And then that process of actually being able to validate in the wild that has been restricted now is what you're saying, I think. That's very accurate. That's well stated. Okay. So can you tell me more about how much can you gather from the simulated iterations? Like, is that satisfactory for building models that you know are making progress? Yes. Simulation has its pros and cons. And I'll talk about the strengths first. 
and then I can talk about some of the difficulties if they're interesting. But one of the strongest parts of simulation is that we can have a lot of different frameworks, we call them, to test different problem areas. When the car goes on the road, it has, the first thing it does is gather data in the car driving loop through sensors. We call that perception, which is it takes cameras, radar, and LIDAR, and it takes the input and builds a model of what that world's doing. You know, that's actually a bus, not just a picture or a billboard, you know, and it, and it builds that model, that's perception. Then the next thing it does is it feeds it into what we call planning, which is where it decides what maneuver it's going to execute next, where it's gonna execute it, and it looks and figures out the timing and when to go. And at the very end, we have something we call controls which is when the car goes, I'm turning left now, here goes, and starts driving and pays attention if something goes wrong so that it can do something to ensure safety, usually putting on the brakes. So as the car is doing that, we can capture that perception stack, like I mentioned before, all the data coming in, and we can recreate that to test the car in the exact same situation as far as the car knows again. So that's replay. That's one of our most important frameworks. I think 90% of our tests that we run to validate new code, we want run by replaying old scenarios and making sure they're better. We also have somewhere, since replay is expensive and takes a lot of cloud compute time and sometimes noisy and we'll miss the actual thing we're looking at, we can script scenarios like you would in a mission editor for a video game. And we can say, okay, there's three cars here, there's four pedestrians here, our car wants to turn left Here's all the tracks, everything's on go. And we can now drop our vehicle into a highly scripted environment to test it against very exacting scenarios that we've invented. And so we have a few of those to test planning and another one to test the controls, you know, to make sure the maneuvers executed right and it makes good choices about the maneuvers. And lastly, we have one that's an entire 3D world. And you'll see in most of our press that we release about simulation, this video game style, realistic 3D world that we can use to test the car and feed it into the sensors and have the car react to a world that doesn't even exist, but is similar to what we want to test. So there's a lots of different pieces of the car we can simulate and we can target different pieces of it. I got to stop and making sure I'm going the right direction with your question though. Yeah, no, this is great. And it almost sounds like these scripted scenarios are sort of like unit tests. Yeah, that is very much what they're like. They're a little bit bigger and we just call them product area test suites, you know, just to, and we have an entire department of systems engineers that make sure we have full coverage of everything the car is going to do in these big suites that there are a lot like unit tests. I used to call them that when I got here, but the definition is slightly different if you're on the inside. So that's accurate. Hmm. Tell me more about the software stack that goes into the simulation platform. I think the simulation platform is called Matrix, right? Yeah, that's one of them. The one where we do the 3D world, where we can actually render entire visual sets and feed them into the car as if it was the sensor feeds. That one's Matrix. We build that in a common high quality game engine that people use to make HD games. Because about 90% of the code you need to make a realistic looking world is already baked into that. So that one is a big C++ engine. 
We can run lots of tests on that in the cloud. We can use a GPU farm to generate all the visuals. Because if you think about it, people talked about VR as being more graphically intensive because it had to project the screen twice, one for each eye. Our car has something like 23 or 28 eyes when you think about it, because we have all the different cameras and things. So we have to make sure that we use a very efficient system to be able to run this. And we run it at a slower frame rate than reality to make sure that we can be very accurate. So that one is matrix. And that's one that we're always evolving because we believe that we'll end up heavily dependent on it towards the end for some of the final stages of AV development, which is generating data we can use to train the cars without ever entering reality. Wow. So when you say the final stages, what do you mean exactly? Is that like in terms of the roadmap to complete autonomy? Yeah, I think for me, I think of it as the final stages of building a simulation where you can test everything you would want to test and to be able to let the cars run for extended durations. We call that exposure testing and to be able to feed it all sorts of new 3D situations. The other frameworks we use are generally two-dimensional. The ones we use to test planning sim and control sim, we usually have a top-down view of those because you really only care about the things at the street level, the cars, the cyclists, the buildings, the pedestrians, and where the lane markers are. So those are a lot cheaper to run. And so every time we can run the tests in these two-dimensional simulations, we can run a lot more of them because they use less cloud compute. And then finally, we have replay, which is kind of in the middle. We feed a lot of this old data to the car and we just run the car stack. We don't have to create it a fake world because we're feeding it the stream that once was its world. And a lot of the replay testing framework is some Python and some C++ just to get that feed to a car and to spoof the real world for the car so it thinks it's in one. So like the matrix framework, lots of C++, lots of code to create an entirely fake world and then build sensor imagery. Whereas the replay framework is a bunch of scripts, code, and you know, like backend framework pieces just to feed old data to the car and see what it does. So the tech is all over that spectrum. And the simulations, as you mentioned, they need to mimic the sensor inputs. So the simulations actually mimic the camera, the radar, the LIDAR. It almost sounds like a virtualized hardware situation. Can you tell me more about what exactly do you have to program in the simulation? I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you would have to program a physics engine, for example, to know how the car is driving along the surface and you know, yeah, it's bumping along a gravelly road. But what about the actual sensor inputs? To what extent do you have to mimic like the actual hardware inputs? That's a great question because some things are decently easy to begin mimicking. Like video game technology is used to create the 2D images the cameras would catch. And we've all played video games or at least seen them played. And you say, you know, that looks pretty real. There's a lot of effort to get the last 5% towards real, but you often don't need to do that in simulation. You know, that's mainly for training data, which we can talk about later. But some of them are harder. LiDAR is also decently easy to mimic. We have an entire simulation group called Sensors, by the way. It's a very clear name. The Sensors group looks at the sensors we have, 
makes our models as best as possible. They make the best camera models they can, the best LiDAR models they can, and the best radar models they can. And they also test new hardware before we think about adopting it for cars. So people will say, what about this new LiDAR model that's coming out that looks like it has double the resolution? What would that be like? And they also test our calibration rigs before we build these big warehouse calibration rigs for the cars. So sensors is very important. That's why I like this question a lot. And coming from video games, I at first was like, that's cool. We can perfectly model all the sensors and then we can perfectly build the world, right? And they're like, not so fast. We can do a great job on video. We can do a great job on LiDAR, but the defense industries of the world are still trying to get radar right. Radar is harder, and we can use a lot of statistical models to build out a radar simulation, but it's never as perfect as the AV engineers really want it to be. So we can come close, but we always know there's a little Achilles heel in there. Radar has a lot of like atmospheric lensing effects and a lot of things that cause distortion, and it's very complex to model. But we do a pretty good job. So that's what Matrix will do a lot, is figure out how to see what the world would look like with new sensors before we invest you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars into actually mounting them and trying them out. And that team, our sensors team, has helped us make some really good decisions over the last couple of years. You know, yes and no decisions on will this make things better. And having the 3D matrix lets us do things like identify blind spots for the different sensors, help us choose placement, and even help us model as we change from the Chevy-based platform we have on the road today to the one you've seen in the news with no driver at all that's a little more like a rectangle than a car shape. And it's helping us make all the right choices for placement and which sensors to use so that we don't overbuild and that we don't underbuild. There are also interactive agents in this simulation. you got pedestrians and cars. How are these agents programmed? So they're programmed a little bit differently than I would have done them in video games. That's another one of those moments where I came in and in my early video game career, I loved to program AI. In video games, it's called NPCs, non-player characters. All the other people running around, they're just computer run and all the cars that aren't run by players. And that term came over to the autonomous vehicle industry. So it's called NPC AI here too. But in video games, we would program the AIs to do things that were fun. Like a lot of times they're targets or they're sidekicks. They're designed to take, you know, some of the falls for you while you try and be the hero in the game. And so you program them to be such. In the world of autonomous vehicles, we want them to be as accurate as possible. So the first thing we do is we just, we'll use the simplest thing, a scripted path. You can imagine in replay, if you've got somebody crossing the street, they're going to do the same thing every time because it's a scripted sensor input. But then later on, we want it to react if the car does a different thing. Like if the car is going to take a little bit of the right away out of a pedestrian, you would expect them to stop. And so we start to program thinking in reactivity. We have the AIs doing things like we would expect them to do. And sometimes they're scripted and sometimes they're like playing back something an AI actually did. But our scenarios are short. They're like 20 seconds long, sometimes at the max. And so no one would ever play a 20 second video game, but that gives us the advantage saying, here's what this pedestrian is gonna do, now let's let it react. 
what we've been doing lately is we're starting to team up with the AI prediction group that the car has. There's an entire prediction group in the AV stack, building a piece of the AV stack that goes, okay, I see the bus, I see the pedestrian, I see the bike, what's it going to do? It looks like it's turning left based on its lean, you know, and, and it looks like this, that, and the other thing. And so we're starting a team with them to make it so that we can have AIs that use the machine learning models that they're building on how do we predict what these cars and cyclists are doing and bring that back to our totally fake simulated worlds to say like, okay, now can we have our pedestrians do these predicted behaviors based on the, you know, reacting to the car we have. So there's a lot of work going on there. And this is one of the areas where we're far from perfect. We have some basic AI in where they follow paths, like, you know, things on an, it's a small world ride. <laughs> Everyone starts with that. And then we have ones where they have basic reactivity of get out of the way. And we're working on things like, how can we make AIs that will accelerate the problems we're trying to detect and solve, like distracted AI, the person crossing the street while checking their phone, and kind of late night partier AI, kind of oblivious to what's the sidewalk and what's the road. You know, so we're looking at how we can take those AIs and then concentrate them to give them different variables that we can use to parametrically see what different kinds of people would do in these situations because there's no one average person we have to be ready for every person on the road so the simulation strategy obviously involves being in the real world and in the 3d simulation you have to mimic the real world do you have any feedback mechanisms for measuring the diff between the real world and the a 3D simulation, like ways of kind of understanding, you know, how closely are we actually resembling the real world with our simulation? I love that question. It describes about 50% of our effort right now. And we call it reproducibility, the ability for our car to mimic on-road behavior when let loose in the simulation. There's a lot of gaps. Simulating the world is really harder than it sounds at first. Like vehicle dynamics modeling, there's a range of what you can do. You can start with the car just driving along a track based on old data. Then you can say like, oh, well, I want to have a model where it has some power and it has some mass. And so you usually can whip up something. We call it a bicycle model because it has only two wheels and you just don't let it roll like a motorcycle. And you say, okay, that'll handle kind of bulk mass dynamics. And then you will eventually end up with more of a planner model where you have a, the car as a sprung mass on top of the wheels, which are stuck to the road. And that's what we're used to with cars. And then we can start modeling comfort. And are we giving our passengers a good ride or are we making them sick? And so that's one example right there. And at the extreme end, there are third-party companies where their entire job is to build car simulation models. And they're expensive. They're used by companies like General Motors to test their cars and see how they react in a lot of different simulated situations for real cars that humans drive. And those are so big and so expensive and also so proprietary that we can only use one or two of those to test the cars out and they're overkill. Those have crazy things like torsion on axles and this stuff that can create minor vibration effects, but we don't care about yet. So we have to choose our battles. Where will the sim be realistic? And just to give you some perspective, right now we're going like, 
we are in San Francisco, we should probably put the hills in. <laughs> so build the roads to be actually 3D. A lot of our situations happen in 2D, you know, like left turns, right turns and stuff. But we're starting to bring in data and say like, okay, we actually need to model these roads better to actually match the elevation. And the way we pick our battles is that we, as we run all these tests, especially the replay tests, we get out the metrics that we care about. How close are we to the other cars? What was the personal space we gave pedestrians? You know, what's our timing for the car behind us? Did we break too quickly? So we have names for all those metrics internally. They're all three-letter acronyms, so I won't bother you with them. And we get those out of the real drive. And we're like, okay, now let's play that back, either in replay or a sim, and see how much they vary. Then we can go and analyze those, find out where the variance came from, what the root cause is. Think questions like, sometimes we'll go like, why is our car a meter out of position? That's crazy. And we're like, oh, it didn't merge. Okay, so sometimes that's good. It's like merging was what caused the scary event last time. Let's not merge again. And sometimes it's bad. It's like, dang it, it was supposed to merge. And so we start to do all of this to get the dynamics to match, to get the car's behavior to match, and any of these other thousand variables that can make the car and the world not behave the same way going forward. So... That's a huge push for us right now because our cars are off the road. So we need to rely on sim even more. So by the way, are all the cars off the road? I feel like I've seen some cruise cars around SF. No, they aren't. That's been great for us. We have some cruise cars around SF. What we did is we have drivers that were saying we're itching to do something and we had cars just parked. And so we had to spend a while making a safety protocol for it to work so that we would make sure it was careful. But Cruz contacted various charities in San Francisco and said, can we use our fleet and our drivers in some way to deliver food to the most vulnerable people in San Francisco? And so you'll see the cruise cars driving around and we're gathering limited data, but they're actually being used as delivery because our idea was like, let's do some good while we're here. And so we've had this program that we've been very proud of where the volunteers who want to drive, follow the safety protocols, use our cars, and they're basically delivering food to people who need it and can't get it themselves. So you'll see that in San Francisco, and there's a side effect. It allows us to collect limited data. There's, it's not our whole fleet, it's only a few of the cars, but it's been helpful for us because we can get up-to-date data because a lot of our old data is like three months old now. There's also a few cars driving around in Phoenix as well. And once again, following safety protocols. And so we get that. And I feel that my gut is we're getting about 10% of the data we used to out of these two different initiatives. 10%. So how do you know the simulations that you're running are useful if you can't validate them right now? That's what we're using. Like once we do it, we can use the cars that are running to check them out. Hmm. So... One of the positive silver lining things to come out of this situation is my simulation group now meets with the AV engineering group about three times a week to make sure we're doing coordinating on exactly doing what they need so they can validate exactly what they're trying to build right now. The groups were a little asynchronous before where Sim was like, okay, you give us a list of five things and we'll build them this month. And by the way, we're working on this matrix thing that you don't quite use as much because you don't need it all the way. And now it's like, 
every day we go, we groom our backlog and they say, we've got three new metrics to test safety and four new metrics to test comfort. And we need to get the simulation on road results to match, you know? So it's sort of like, oh great, they don't. And about three times a week now, we focus our efforts on using those few drives we have and the significantly attenuated mileage accumulation to make sure we validate that. So it's interesting because it's harder, but we're trying to make it so our development doesn't really miss a beat during this time. And the lessons we're learning will be very useful when we're allowed to fully deploy a fleet again because we're so coordinated with the other team. So there's been a lot of good come out of that. If it wasn't apparent from this conversation already, you're the VP of simulation. What does your work entail? So I guess the best way to describe my job is one of our founders and our CTO, Kyle Vaught, asked me to do two things that he thought were important when I signed up. Besides just run the group, go to meetings. I got to leave that off the table because we know that happens. But he said, I want you in a certain amount of time to get simulation to a point where it's so good that simulation validation replaces on-road validation of the car's code. Now, that doesn't mean that we would have the cars stop verifying that the code was correct. But the goal was to get them so accurate that the AV engineers almost always go to simulation first. So he gave me a certain amount of time to do that. And my team's trying to beat that time because we're really excited about it. The other thing that I do is I spend a lot of time making sure that it gets easier and easier to author the tests that aren't just the replay tests where you capture them and press play. Those tests, it can take a long time. It can take like a week to author some of the complicated ones because there's so many tiny adjustments and variables we do. And so I've been working on finding out what things are blocking people from being able to build those tests. So that's another important thing he had me do. And then it turned out somewhat serendipitously that I ran into the experience that we talked about before where I'm spending a lot of my time kind of refocusing my group to be a customer service group internally. You know, it's interesting. A lot of us built video games before. Not all of us. I'd say like 30% of the team. But we're like, oh, cool. We'll go build that for you. But that's not how it works if you're serving internal customers. You actually have to go out and talk to the people who are using your code You have three or four times a day and say, did that work for you? How can we adjust it? And we have to deploy our engineers to work directly with them to make sure it does what they want, not just what the product requirement doc thought it wanted. And so that's the other thing I'm doing is I'm integrating the simulation team really tightly with all of our AV creation efforts. And that's really fun for me. One of my previous jobs was at a company where one of their top values is just focusing on the customer. And that was Amazon. We know them well. And I really liked that. And I've been trying to bring that into our internal group at Cruise. So those are three things I work on making the sim more accurate, like we talked about before, and then integrating tightly with all the groups that rely on us within Cruise so that we can deliver faster and more accurately to what they need. Tell me more about what your interaction is like with the other teams. Like specifically, there's the road testing team. What's your interaction with the road testing team? And by road testing team, do you mean... There's systems engineers who analyze the data when it comes back from a drive. And then there's the actual people who are driving the cars. I assume you're talking about the systems engineering team that analyzes the data post-drive, right? Yes, yes. So I actually really like the interaction with them. They're a very data-driven, statistically-minded group that is building 
test-driven development model for improving the car. There's three things that they're improving. They're improving safety. That's always number one. Then they're improving ride comfort because no one wants a safe ride that makes them sick. That's no good. And the last one is trip time. You want to make sure you get there in a reasonable amount of time or you're going to walk or call a cab. So that's what they do. They design these entire test suites like we discussed before to test all of that functionality. And as they design those suites, they have systems test engineers build out the test. They build out the replay test based out of snippets from previous drives. They script the test so that we can do the 2D simulation test to make sure the car is planning right and that it's going to you know, run through the intersection correctly and all of that. And then they run the simulations. So we build the simulations, but they run them. So system test builds out all these tests to hit the coverage area that our systems engineering groups asked for the simulations run. At the end of that, then the systems engineers get the results back as all the logs, but really what they're looking for is the the metrics. If you run 50,000 tests, you can't look at every single test. It's just impossible. So you want to make sure that those tests are self-validating to make sure they're okay. And we're always working on that. And then to make sure that the data come out is the metrics you're looking for for the different product areas you're testing to make sure things got better while not making other product areas worse. So we're in the middle and that systems engineering group is running the show. So we always need to know what metrics are you testing next? That's almost what it boils down to because they don't really right now need us to run long soap tests and look for trouble. We have plenty of trouble. I think we've got over a petabyte of data. I don't know for certain, but <laughs> what our retention policy has turned it into lately. But we have a lot of old trouble that we can look at and try and improve. And so that's our relationship with them is we're a non-black box. They know how we work. They write the tests, they run, they get the information out. And then when on-road doesn't correlate to simulation, they ask us to make the simulation better. So that kind of brings the four pieces of our conversation together, hopefully. That's the relationship. Mm. And what about the other management structures around you and the information flows around you? Can you give me a picture for how the simulation team fits in organizationally with the rest of crews? Yeah, I think organizationally, there's verticals at Cruise a little bit. Simulation is one of them. So the different simulation frameworks, I report straight to Kyle, our CTO. And then my peers are, there's robotics groups that report into Rashad Hawk, who's our VP of robotics. And then there, and I think he also runs the systems test group. And then our systems test engineers actually work directly for the groups that need the tests written so they can have a tighter loop. So what we have to do is put together a lot of process to communicate between the groups. Uh, We have a a lot of small teams of eight to 10 people working on different problems, but we have a lot of process to make sure that I talk to Rashad and his directors to make sure we're acting on their highest priorities. So that's where we spend a lot of time meeting, putting our heads together and figuring out what we're going to solve next. So me, directors, engineering managers, and even lead engineers, when we go to write a design doc for a new thing we're doing in simulation, we work directly with our partners on the other teams so that we know we're answering the questions that they're trying to ask. Even if there's already a product requirement doc and a tech design doc, we want to make sure that we collaborate and get it done together. So there's a heavy degree 
of necessary collaboration across these different verticals. And we're always trying to improve that because any organizational model has its problems. If you're heavily matrixed horizontally where you have these teams that have people from different disciplines, then you run into the things like, well, who's the career manager of those different disciplines? And then you end up with a pooled model. So I never get into org design that much because whatever you get, my job is to make it work. And so I like how it's working at Cruise. Hmm. Lots of collaboration. The saving grace is our mission. I think, you know, we've, we've probably talked about it with you before, but just to restate it, everyone at Cruise is doing the same thing. And so if, if how we're going to do the mission changes, everyone at Cruise changes because we have Kyle and Dan, our CEO, get in front of the company every week and tell us what's up, what's changing, what the hot news is. The mission itself, I memorized it, so let's see if I get it right here. Cruise is building the world's most advanced self-driving vehicles to safely connect people with the places, things, and experiences they care about. Now, below that is more detail, which is, we believe self-driving vehicles when deployed at scale have the potential to save millions of lives, reshape the physical environment. You know, there's a trillion acres that's just parking lots. That's what we mean when we say reshape the environment. And there's streets that you have to wait to cross because there's too many cars. Mm -hmm. And we want to give back billions of hours of time and restore freedom of movement to people. There's just so much good that would come out of this that we're all excited about that mission. So when we change how we're going to approach the mission, when we try research initiative A and it doesn't work and we all go to research initiative B, we get together and we figure out how to make the next one work. So that's the gift of having a singular focus company. And that gets us past all the organizational issues that usually have to put a lot of process together at other companies to fix. Beautiful. You worked for many years in video games, and I'm really curious about how the simulation work that you're doing at Cruise compares to designing real worlds in video games. Oh, this is a fun one for me because I loved making video games. (laughs) So all of my college work was in cars and robotics and systems engineering for control systems and all but computers were crummy back then. So I went to go simulate things for video games. And I finally was able to boil it down into what are their main differences where the passion for video games carries over to the cars. And it's a simulated world. In video games, you're always trying to make a world feel real. Not every video game, you know, platforming jumpers and stuff like that. They don't try and be real. But I'm thinking of the HD video games I used to work on, like football games and car games and stuff like that. And so we were always trying to have the world look really realistic, which we need in the world of AVs. If we're going to build fake data to train our machine learning algorithms for these cars, it's great to be able to have that data be as real as possible. We also, in video games, we were hyper competitive about performance. We wanted to use every clock cycle. We wanted to make sure that we always ran at the best framework. And we always want to say, we did that first. And music to my ears in video games when I worked on these high-end video games that just sold millions and millions of copies was I love to hear people say, we didn't think this was even possible. So for us, that's where we do the victory dance. And to do that, we had to have hyper-efficient resource management. We had to be really good at three dimensions. We had to be really good at understanding why graphics do what they do. Like I remember in the early 90s, everyone's like, whoa, what is lens flare? Now it's boring, right? Because it was overdone. And now we're like, how do we do like ambient occlusion? How do shadows work? And Working it out in video games is kind of came first because billions and billions of dollars are dropped on video games. 
to do accidental R&D on how to make graphics better, how to make 3D engines for worlds more efficient, how to stream data you don't need in and out when you do need it off of disks or off of the internet. And so these big engines came into being third-party commercial engines and then custom engines on the inside of companies that people could use where we started solving all those problems. And I was there for the whole ride. I joined video games right when 2D went to 3D and I got to enjoy all of this with, you know, like 2,000 of my closest friends. We built all these games together. So that was great. So I think when people were building AVs, they started to realize we need to use those video game engines because that's 5 million lines of code closer to our target that has already been tested by tens, if not 100 games. And it became natural to hire people who were good at that. But can you tell me more about, like, does the development actually have any resemblance? I mean, I guess the game is more of a entertainment scenario, but, like, if you're... In some sense, it's like the bar for the game is higher because you have to make everything look really pretty, but in another sense, the bar is lower because in a simulation, you know, you're building a product that is, you know, going to eventually have life-threatening consequences. You know, I... I just am thinking while you're asking this, that a good way to answer this is how the, the shape of the team changes between the two, because that answers these questions. In video games, one third of my team would be artists because we had to make everything look good. We had to make everything explode correctly. At Cruise, we don't make anything explode. We need it to just be realistic. So we see the art team is smaller. We have like four people working on art at crews and then they'll hire contract houses to build the art instead of when I was working on bigger games, we'd have a hundred artists. Then we also, we have less gameplay and UI engineering. You have to make a video game easy to use. So you end up with maybe 10 people just trying to figure out how to make it so that anyone can play it and that the UI is crystal clear and that everyone knows what to do next. And for us, we're running a lot of these in the cloud. And so our UI is more like, running Jenkins sometimes. It's like, I want to use a batch build. Then there's what you're talking about is, I think I boil that down to precision. I need to spend a lot of time making our simulations match on-road performance for the car and to make the NPCs, the pedestrians, the cars, the bicyclists, all of that begin to match what the real world is like. And I need the visuals to be accurate, not gorgeous. And so we're working on you know, high noon in San Francisco may not look stunning. It's not an Ansel Adams photograph. Well, it's also not black and white. But at the same time, we're like, what does it really look like? Let's get this right so that the car sees what the car would see. So there's a lot of parallels, but we spend more time on accuracy. We get the car models accurate. We don't actually enter the cars, so we don't have to you know, model all the pieces that don't ever happen, like getting in the back seat and seeing the back of the seat. The other thing is there's no development cycle like a video game. In video games, towards the end, everyone works really hard to get that game done by, you know, Christmas or football season or something like that. And then they take a month off to recover. We're just always running. So we have a standing team. We can't surge people on at the end to get something done and then I'll take a month off. So we end up with a team that's smaller than you would have to build a video game because we need less gameplay, we need less UI. And so it's heavily engineering focused and there's less design. A lot of times in video games, you'll be designing a game, 
for one market and then that market will either die or another company will dominate it. Like, I think we saw that happen with the last man standing genre. You know, the, the one where like everyone gets in an arena and then whoever's left wins. And we saw that evolve through a lot of different games until one really good company kind of captured that market and started evolving it somewhere else. The other games are all still there. But while you're developing your game, if you see that happening, you have to be light on your feet to hit these new creative targets. And our target isn't as creative. It's driving. So it's like we take everything about building video games and we take the fun out of the game. We still enjoy building it, though. <laughs> so I hope that partially answers your question. Is there more I can talk about there? No, that's plenty. And we can begin to wrap up. I did want to ask you, when it comes to outstanding engineering problems at Cruise, what are the other problems that you're faced with right now? What are the engineering problems that you're most focused on? I think they're all subcategories. Well, most are subcategories under making simulation match on road performance. There's some difficult problems with determinism there, like the butterfly effect. I mean, the cars themselves have all these different sensors, all these different processes for the sensors running at different threads with different timing. So we have to solve the problem of how do we recreate that scene, which we call determinism. It's like, can we get the timing just so, so the car does the same thing the same time with the same AV stack? And so there's people that actually aren't on the simulation team who've been working on that a lot. And then we incorporate their simulations into sim. So that's one of them. Then the next problems we have are detecting when our tests succeed or fail. The example I gave earlier where our car's a meter out of position, was that good or bad? Because let's say we don't want the car to change lanes now. That means that if the car is a meter out of position, it didn't change lanes, perhaps. And then being able to automatically look at that and write these tests so that we know that that's like, oh, that test passed versus if the car is a meter out of position because there was an error, like that test failed. So that's the next one we have is how do we detect the validity of the tests themselves and solve a garbage in, garbage out problem? So there's a lot of that. The other things we're working on are there's this problem that might seem complex, but I'm going to relate it to video games so that everyone in the audience knows this. If you're working on a game and you save your state, you have a video game save file. But let's say you change the game and now that save file doesn't match. There's no level five. You know, the sword you thought you won is gone. So as we change the state of the AV stack, saving the state of what the car was thinking starts to corrode. And so we can't enter one of these six-hour replays in media res to do a 20 second run to see if it would do the same thing. As the AV stack evolves over time, that replay starts to become invalid. Like the car would never be between two double parked delivery vans now. So how's this test even valid? So we're looking at ways to be able to save state and modify that state as we develop. So as we change the AV stack, what does that mean to what the car was thinking when we dropped in in media res? The other alternative is to start the car further back in time and let it build a similar kind of headspace, but doing that doesn't always guarantee the same headspace. And it's expensive because that takes longer than running the test itself. And so that could like double or triple the cost of running the test. So that's the next thing we're solving is we call it, this is a contentious term a little bit. It's called the hot start problem because we've applied it to a lot of different things, but it's like, how do we just drop in the car and have it be thinking the same thoughts? And it's really hard. 
And so we're looking, can we solve around that problem? Can we do it? So that's another big one we're solving. And then the other ones we're solving is just like, well, now we've got to work with heavy rain. What about snow? You know, all these different weather conditions. And then we're working on localization. How can you just pick a spot in San Francisco and say, I want that spot modeled in 3D for my matrix simulation so I can start scripting. So we have some projects we've been working on there, like where we have very specific spots in San Francisco that we have modeled out so we can say we can grab that. And then we have to be able to change it when the public works. People go in, throw out a bunch of cones, dig up the street, and put new lane markings on. So we have a fleet that runs around San Francisco all the time just mapping so that we can catch that and then change it. And then the next problem is, what if it's not San Francisco? What if we need to model Houston, right? So there's a lot of forward R&D work. I focused on the right now problems because I thought that was most interesting for the interview. But forward we'll have to deal with snow it doesn't snow much in san francisco at least not while i've been alive and then we have to also focus on different cities different countries different locales and so there's a lot of work to go on there the other front we're working on is we're starting to get more and more requests for training data can you use your 3d matrix simulation to create scenes that i can use to train my machine learning algorithm while we you know before we go out on the road and start training it with real data so those are the big problems we're working on right now hmm. All right. Well, just to wrap up, do you have a sense for how close we are to full autonomy? I think I'm so close to it that and I'm thinking so fast about all of it that I, I don't trust my sense of that. I think that because I don't trust my sense, I fall back and look at what actually the combined journalism that's approaching the topic looks at and say like, okay, what do the scientists outside of me think? But I think it's near. I don't want to really talk about timing and dates that much because I'd like to not make up my own answers that might overlap Cruz's different answers, but it's really close. Before COVID, I was riding around in these cars every day and we had some rides where the car would drive through Chinatown, which is mainly pedestrians. It's a little tiny bit of room for cars to go through, then drive down Market Street and then go drive. And there were whole drives for the, the vehicle operators, the AVT, it didn't have to take over the car just knew what to do. And I just see the rapid amount of change Cruz is making as they just brute force bang their heads on all these problems and solve them. So I think it's closer than people think, but I'm going to be careful. I, I don't really want to commit to what. <laughs> all right. What I can say is really important to Cruz. So I want to say it if you don't mind, which is we will release our vehicles to drive themselves when they're safe. That's the number one thing. They have to be safe. And our, the word we use internally is superhuman. We are working to statistically measure how to prove that a cars are a number of times safer than human drivers before we'll let them on the road. So you'll see us been driven by safety and that's going to be what lets us decide. Okay. Well, Tom, it's been wonderful talking to you. And, you know, I, I won't hold you to any dates of autonomy. I didn't give any, so we're in good luck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Yes, thanks. 